Welcome back to Following Noadon, a Stormlight podcast. This week is episode 21, and we are finishing the book this week. This is the entirety of part five from chapter 70 all the way through the epilogue and some bits and pieces afterwards as well. Uh, what are your two words, Elliot, for the end of the book? My two words for the final section of the book are radiance and darkness. Radiance and darkness. All right. Uh, Paul, what are your two words? My two words are, uh, so I have violate and reawakened. Violate and reawakened. Okay. Yes. We brought some big words this week. There are some big words here. All right. Let's discuss them. All right, we'll start with you, Elliot. Radiance and darkness. I feel like this is pretty self-explanatory, but walk us through it anyway. Yeah, it's it's probably pretty obvious. And I should clarify, when I say radiance, I'm not talking about like knights, radiance, plural or some version of that. It's okay, radiance. Yes, yes, with a, with a C-E there at the end of it. So the, I guess that would still be a noun, but... The radiance is describing light, you know, shining through something. But it is related to the Knight's Radiant. We we get some good information about the Knight's Radiant. We're starting to learn a little bit more. We are getting, we get the final scene of the book before the epilogue where Dalinar meets the Almighty. And he tells him, basically, you got to restart the Knight's Radiant. And that was that was cool. That was big. And... I picked darkness to kind of be a little bit of a dichotomy to that because I felt like that was very much the the tone of this last section of the book. We had lots of really high kind of light, bright hero type reveals and things, but then we also had this darkness. We we learn who perhaps the the ultimate villain is and the darkness that he's uh, getting involved in. And then we get that last scene that I was just talking about with the Almighty where we see basically the darkness like chewing up Roshar as it just kind of sweeps over it. So this this dichotomy of light and darkness, radiance, darkness. Nice, nice. Uh, Paul, tell me about your two words. So mine are a little more separated. So first off, I have violate. And that mostly goes into a lot of the characters' behaviors throughout these chapters, specifically with Shalon and Zeth where they I couldn't come up with a word to perfectly describe it I guess but they get as close to violating the norms or, or their boundaries as they can okay um and I'll go more into that later uh but effectively for them and then I also have reawakened which is mostly with the epilogue and we kind of see a glimpse of a character who's maybe reawoken or a great evil or something. Mm-hmm. So big stuff has woken up from, you know, long nap and uh <laughs> we'll talk we'll talk about it, but that's why I chose the word long nap. Yes, we will talk about mm-hmm. it. But before we do, we have a spell check. And it's been a while since we've we've done one of these. We have one word uh this week 
and it is the name or the name that he gives, I should say, for himself of the Herald in the epilogue. A Herald walks up to the gates of Kolinar, which we actually haven't seen yet, and he gives a name. Well, he he looks a little distraught, first of all. he He's kind of limping and limping and dragging his shard blade. And he gives a name at the gate. Uh, Elliot, would you like to say this name? The, the syntax, if you will, is a little funky on this name. I don't want to hint anymore for, for Paul, but I'll take a shot at it. I I would guess it's pronounced Talanel Elin. Okay. So in the audiobook, it's a hard E at the end, at the second second half of it. So it's Talanel Elin, not Ellen. Oh, so okay. it's Talanel Elin is how they say it in the audiobook. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. That makes sense now. Uh, Paul, how would you how would you spell it? So I still don't know whether or not this is two words or one word, but regardless, I'm assuming it's hold on, one hold if on. it's a name. Before you, before you guess, there was an mm-hmm. apostrophe in Rock's name, so you should use that knowledge. All right. That's no a, more hints. That's some good information. Okay, so Talonel Elin, Elin, close enough. Uh, I went with T A. L U N E L apostrophe okay E L E N you are very close so as a, with your u it's a e instead and you were completely perfect other other than that wow okay i think you i think you missed a letter at the end too as well the it's e l i n for the the second portion there okay i see i did have e n at the end so, but gotcha. just a couple of vowels off. Yep, just a couple true, of vowels. True. You're good. Which and you got that apostrophe, so <laughs> it's actually did. it's yeah. actually kind of interesting. It's not terribly palindromic. Is palindromic a word? It is now. Um, it is now. And like the heralds are supposed to be, you know, the holy the holy gods of the Voran Church, and his name isn't very isn't much of a palindrome, so. Interesting. All right, we will come back. I'm sure, Elliot knows why. Yes, I'm. Elliot. I have no idea why. <laughs> All right, we will we will come back to Talonel Elin, and uh, we'll vi- revisit him in the epilogue when we get there. But first of all, let's talk about these Shalon chapters. Let's talk about them all together. It'll be kind of easier that way. We'll talk about seventy, seventy-two, and seventy-four, and we have. A couple of different reveals and we'll go through them uh, piece by piece so the last time we saw Shalon she had just failed to steal the soul caster she had drink she had eaten some poisonous bread and been on her deathbed quite literally and Yasna had saved her with what we had assumed to be her soul caster that Shalon had stolen but when Shalon wakes up in this in this hospital room, she's, you know, feels bad about what she did and spends like three hours wallowing in self-pity. But then it dawns on her that Yasna and Elliot, you had you mentioned this when on the episode that we talked about this earlier, that Yasna ate the bread. 
and Yasna had told her that the bread was poisoned. So Shalon kind of like sits up in her bed. It's like, wait a minute, that doesn't add up. Why did like the jam wasn't there either? What? Why for her either? Why? Why did she not get poisoned? And the conclusion she comes to is kind of a stretch, honestly. Like, how did she come up with this? You know, that she soul casted without a soul caster. That's not. That's not a very common like that's not a common thing that people do. So how did she how did she come up with that that the soulcaster was fake? But anyway, she she concludes the soulcaster is fake and confronts Yasna about it. Any thoughts about this scene? So yes, this this is largely why I chose one of my two words violate. Okay. Shalon isn't technically like she's not breaking any rules, but she's completely pulling out the stops here. And I don't know how to put it exactly. So she she makes these I guess you could say wild conclusions about Yasna and what she's been doing and that she can soul cast without a soul caster, but she also knows it. It's mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like a a jump or a hypothesis it feels like she knows it and so she's using this almost as dirt to to get more from yasna right, right? and to continue uh awardship and so yeah i thought that was a very bold move you know so when shout out to shalon when we last saw shalon i asked you guys does shalon have any any future with Yasna and both of you assumed well no like she can't right she just stole a soul caster that's worth going to war over and Yasna could put her in prison as she says in this episode and but here we are uh the next chapter we see her and she blackmails Yasna into (laughs) keeping her keeping her on as a as a pupil well it's it's not quite that uh dramatic but it it is in a way it kind of is yeah it doesn't feel incredibly menacing the the blackmail aspect it's like you know like this doesn't have to become a big deal if if i just get to keep learning with you and stuff right. like that so it is like blackmail but it's not that major it, it, it you can just feel the passion with shalon there and that she is dying to know more and we learn a lot more in these chapters which i thought was super cool um specifically about well we learned about shadesmar which was super cool at the very start there and yeah i don't know if elliot has any more thoughts before i go into that Um, all i'll I'll say is my takeaway from this first start was shalon is a heck of a lot smarter than i am because she noticed that yasna ate the bread just like we did but she was able to make a lot more conclusions than we were about what happened. And just by like sitting there and playing the events kind of back through her mind, she was able to puzzle it out. She, she had maybe a couple of extra bits of information that we did. I think she talked or she, she specifically realized that in her drawing of Yasna, the bread is like melting in her hand or something like that. It's, mm-hmm. it's visibly deformed. We didn't have that clue in our defense uh, when we were trying to figure this out before, but now that I think back on it, this is clearly a good uh, explanation for what went down that we really couldn't uh, couldn't figure out. But Shalon is persistent. Shalon is very, very persistent. 
Yasna can soulcast without a soulcaster, and we don't quite know how that works. She hints at it in a later chapter. We'll talk about it in a second. But does she still require spheres, Stormlight, to, to do it? Because when she went to soulcast Shalon's blood, she was like urgently asking for a garnet. She's like, somebody give me a, bring me a garnet, bring me a garnet, which I know from looking in the Arcanum in the back that the garnet is the the gem that's like aligned with blood. And so did she, was she asking for that as a, as a farce or do I like to try and disguise what she's doing or does she still need to have Stormlight of a certain kind to do it? Do we know? Uh, so that, from a rereach perspective, it's pretty easy for me to piece this together, but this isn't spoiling anything if I just explain this, that she's asking for a garnet to cover up that she can soul cast without it because she'll she's pulling out her she's pulling out her fabrial her um right her soul caster and she needs a garnet to soul cast her blood if she was going to use the soul caster because that's how soul casters work right but that's not how her soul casting works so she was deliberately asking for a garnet to put in her soul caster to pretend that she's using the soul caster but all she needs is stormlight of any kind to to soul cast for her own but she does need stormlight she does need stormlight just like kaladin needs stormlight for his uh search binding interesting okay okay all right now we can talk about shades more all righty that is interesting i i have one thing to to note here sure as we go into shades more so i think it's really interesting how we've seen throughout the book it's like everything is powered by stormlight. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, absolutely everything. Everything mythical, at least, you know. Um, all the the shard blades and plate, things like that, and the surge binders, etc. But I, what I thought was interesting as we kind of look into shades more and how Shalon gets there is it's fueled by like an abstract thing it's fueled by this like revealing of a secret which is really weird to me don't know if y'all have any thoughts about that it's like the more powerful the secret the more effective so here's here's how i can explain this so far and you'll learn a little bit about this pretty soon when we talk about the night's radiant quiz um we'll have a we'll have a special thing about that in a little bit but um each of the orders of knights radiant have a different way that they progress so silfrena requires kaladin to tell him a promise the words i will what are the i i keep hesitating on what the second ideal is because i don't want to accidentally spoil something um i believe it's i will protect those who cannot protect themselves yeah so Kaladin is giving Syl an oath, or whoever's asking for the words, he's giving them an oath. And Shalon is giving the symbol head spren a truth. So the different these different orders of the Knights Radiant progress differently, and it really just depends on which order you're in on how you progress and how you thrive. Does that make sense? Yes. Somewhat. 
It does. And it's awaking a lot of, a lot of thoughts in my, in my brain here. I hadn't realized that the, the words that Kaladin was saying were an oath. That makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense now, right. actually, that Kaladin in tandem with his honor spren, he's making these oaths and like you said, progressing and growing in his powers. Right. We, we learn later on in one of these other Shalon chapters, Yasna, Shalon asks about the symbol heads. She's like, what are they? And Yasna says, I'll explain later, but for now they're just spren. And my guess at what kind of spren was actually that they are truth spren because they demand of her a truth is okay. what they say. You have to tell me a, a truth. And so that's interesting. Maybe Shalon is progressing in her powers by sharing honest, you know, truths or secrets, like you said, Paul, with these truth spren. Are, are they her sill like, like Kaladin has? Hmm. Now, now my, the wheels in my brain are turning. So here's, uh, here's another tidbit for you. The, as, as Kaladin's progressed through this book, he's been accidentally surge binding. He's been like doing it just as a, as a, an instinct, if you will, a habit and not like actively doing it. But as soon as he requires he, as soon as he requires it to save the bridgeman on like an intentional thing of I need stormlight because I am completely exhausted. He needs to say the words to have, have him level up, if you will, to use it better. And then Shallan has accidentally gone to Shadesmar before she, when she soul cast the goblet to blood on accident, um, she she accidentally went to Shadesmar. So now when she's trying to intentionally go to Shadesmar, intentionally use her powers, the the Spren ask her for a truth so that she can progress and then intentionally use her powers. Does that make sense? That both Shallan and Kaladin are kind of progressing here. We've seen more of Kaladin, obviously, but uh next book is Shallan's book, so we'll get to we'll get to see more Shallan. That is interesting. Okay, and just to make sure I understood it right from what you were saying, Trevor. So, Kaladin saying the words as a promise, right? It was those words of, I'll protect those who can't protect themselves. Right. I believe I was probably a little off. Nope, that was right. Um, okay, awesome. So, if that is, I guess, correlated with his connection with Syl the bond spren and then we have shallan with the truth spren right i'm wondering as if... you're calling them now they might not be but yes yes uh, for now for mm -hmm. now the symbol heads the truth spren sure you know um so you said that those were like did you say that those were correspondent to a group of the nice radiant yes each? okay and so now I'm curious with Zeth with his oath stone, that's gotta be like his form of it, right? There's gotta be some kind of oath spren or something like that. That's what's keeping him bound to that oath stone. Okay. Um don't know the exact specifics on that. 
there's got to be something, right? Because he's he's definitely a huge part of that. So do you um, think that do you think that Zeth and Kaladin are in the same order because they have some of the same powers, and they both have oaths? No, they're definitely not in the same thing because this oath stone is just too too big and ominous, and it's too different from what Kaladin has. Yes, they do have similar powers. Mm-hmm. Awesome. But I, I would expect that each Order of the Knights Radiant would have this at least similar powers. Okay. To an extent, you know. At least some have some similarities. Sure. So I believe those would be similar, but not the same. Elliot, any guesses? I feel like Kaladin and Zeth probably are in the same order. I mean... I agree that Zeth kind of handles his honor differently than than Kaladin does, and he has an, an object, an oath stone, as opposed to a, a spren. We don't really know what uh, Zeth's relationship with his spren is at this point, but I'm the way they kind of treat it, focusing around oaths and honor, and all of that seems to be similar enough to make me think that they are in the same. Maybe, maybe Zeth's spren talks to him and Zeth just thinks it's his oath stone talking to him when in reality it's 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 it's, it's his honor spren that's talking to him i don't know maybe i don't know if we have enough information yet but i would probably lean towards them being along the same path can i give you some more information in the book always so no i don't know how much you guys actually looked at the ars arcanum in the back which is just some notes on some rules and fabrials and stuff but I'm it's, gonna look at it. it's almost literally on the last page of the book. And it says, Wind running and lashings. Reports of the assassin in White's audibilities had led me to some sources of information that, I believe, are generally unknown. The wind runners were on order of Knights Radiant, and they were they made use of two primary types of surge binding. The effects of these surge bindings were known colloquially among the members of the order as the three lashings it goes on to explain the basic lashings the full lashings and the reverse lashings as we've as we've seen previous and elliot you've assumed that kaladin has been using these lashings and zeth certainly has been using these lashings he's been naming them as he's using them he knows what they are but kaladin doesn't so he's he does, Kaladin doesn't know what he can do, um, but he's he's using a lot of the same powers that Zeth is, but Zeth is naming them. So, any thoughts on this? If, if the lashings truly are unique to one order of the Knights Radiant, that seems like a lot of evidence that they're the same, but, and, and perhaps that they're, we get a name for their order right here in that they're both Windrunners, but I'd like to point out that we are trusting this Ars Arcanum at the back of the book for some information. Sure. I've, I've learned not to necessarily trust everything we read so far. So that, that, that is definitely a good bit of evidence there for sure. I was going to say that. I was going to save that for the end of the episode, but it tied in really nicely there. So I was just throwing and throwing it in there. Dude, there's no way that, uh, Actually, I'm not going to say there's no way, <laughs> but I, I'm still mentally convinced that Kaladin and Zeth are not in the same order. All right. 
we can go forward with those two predictions that Elliot thinks they are both windrunners and Paul thinks they're not. Do you think one of them is windrunner? And if so, which one? So from how we know Kaladin as being storm blessed and all his like, all his like comparison to wind and such, I don't think he is. And that is also going off of this. So maybe it's not what I thought you were going to say leading into that. (laughs) Got him. So so maybe I'm kind of playing myself here because I'm <laughs> looking at the Ars Arcanum to make this decision, but I'm specifically saying that it's not right because they're not the same. Uh, mostly just because it mentions the assassin reports of the assassin in White's audibilities and et cetera about wind running and lashings. So that makes me think it's Zeth. Mm-hmm. But... I'm not entirely sure. But who knows, right? Yeah. Alright, so let's tie this right into Zeth's chapter. We'll come back to we'll come back to Shalon. Um Zeth. We get a full chapter for Zeth. I, I assumed that Paul would be very excited about this. And we find him in Carbranth, which is where Yasna and Shalon are. And well, I'd like to point out too that this is the first time I think that we've seen Zeth not killing at least one person or many multiples of persons. Mm-hmm. Fair. Okay. Peaceful Zeth. Yep. And he was there to kill Teravangian, but as it turns out, he wasn't actually there to kill Teravangian. Um, any thoughts on, on this chapter? Someone want to take this reveal and run with it? Yes, a little bit. So... Mm. So part of my word, violate, was we see Zeth almost come to his limit of breaking his oath. He specifically, you see his thought process of, I could just kill him. Mm-hmm. Like, talking about Teravangian yep. after he finds out. Um, and that was part of why I chose that word. That is a little ahead, but I, I did want to talk about earlier, just simply to admire the awesome imagery that I got whenever Zeth is approaching Teravangian. It talks about with all the lashings, he makes a rock weightless mm-hmm. and then makes himself weigh one-tenth of his normal weight. Yeah, just and like, he just kind of floats down sends, on this rock. Yep. And I thought that was so cool. I was like, that is sick. I don't know if it, either of y'all did the math on how to get yourself to weigh one-tenth. I didn't bother. Um <laughs> After after all the confusion with a quarter lashing up makes you weigh half, yeah, you know all that all that jazz. But you, you know, there's a good bit of the score going, the musical score going when Zeth is just like slowly, you know, mm-hmm. sinking yeah. down below the floor and into the room below. Exactly. Yeah, I, I can like picture that scene super well. And then he starts to form his shard blade, and he starts speaking, and then Teravangian kind of turns the tables on him. Which was really interesting. We Surprise! Get into anything like this before, so I, I was pretty caught off guard by this uh, this reveal, this twist, plot twist, if you will. I, 
I would never have guessed in a thousand years that uh, Teravangian was the one controlling Zeth. I probably would have guessed that Teravangian is a lot more than he seemed. I probably would have guessed that I, I could easily see him becoming a much bigger character in the future. I could see him being, you know, key to events later on, that much more so than we've seen him so far. But for th that super nice old guy to be this incredible villain who is responsible for the murders of many many people like whoa whoa so yes i agree with you elliot it really caught me off guard when i was the first when i was a first time reader of the way of kings and i and i listened to this episode i remember thinking no way like that that is insane to the point where i missed the second half of the chapter i was <laughs> i was so blown away that teravangian was in charge of zeth and his oathstone that i completely missed the hidden hospital part of the of the chapter <laughs> and i don't want you guys i don't want you guys to miss it i don't know if you guys kind of did the same thing that you were so blown away by teravangian being behind zeth that you kind of missed the the second part of the chapter, but we learn that Teravangian in this secret hospital that's not in any, it's like a secret room and it's a huge room. It's got one, like hundreds of beds with sick people in it and they're recording what their dying people are saying. And I'm not sure if you guys have put this together, but let me read this for you. So here's a quote from the chapter 71, which the, the, Zeth, the Zeth chapter that we're in. Teravangian led Zeth to an alcove of beds, each with a sickly person in it. There were healers working on them, doing something to their arms, draining their blood. A woman with a writing clipboard stood near the beds, pen held, waiting for something. What? I don't understand, Zeth said, watching in horror as the four patients grew pale. You're killing them, aren't you? Yes. A little bit further. On the beds, a dying youth started speaking. One of the women, one of the women with the clipboard stepped forward quickly, recording the words. The day was ours, but they took it, the boy cried. Stormfather, you cannot have it. The day is ours. They come, rasping, and the lights fail. Oh, Stormfather, the boy arched his back, then fell still suddenly eyes dead the king turned to zeth it is better for one man to sin than for a people to be destroyed wouldn't you say zeth's son son valano any initial thoughts on that before i move on to what i'm about to what something else i'm about to read just like quick 15 second reaction so my reaction at that was we have found the source of our epigraphs. Correct. We, up until now, we've had the the epigraphs where clearly it's the words of dying people. They're all marked, you know, 12 seconds pre-death, 20 seconds pre-death, along with a date, and then given like a sample number. So all of that fits very nicely into what we just witnessed with a very medical or scientific approach to collecting the words of the death words of the dying and even bringing in shipments of people so that we can kill them and gather their words correct 
way back in chapter one, the epigraph in front of chapter one, we have, you've killed me. Bastards, you've killed me. While the sun is still hot, I die. Collected on the fifth day of the week, Chach, of the month Beteb, of the year 1171, 10 seconds before death. Subject was a dark-eyed soldier, 31 years of age. Sample is considered questionable. And then, if you shuffle to the end note, at the very end of the end note, we have another similar epigraph all the way at the end of the book. Um, I'll read it more later because I'll talk about this end note further. But Joshua, head of His Majesty's Silent Gatherers, Tenetev, 1173. So this is what I want to point out here. This has been happening a long time. They have been collecting th these dead people's words as they die for quite a while. And in the chapter, they say that it, it started happening about seven years ago when Gavilar was exploring the Shattered Plains. People started saying weird things as they die. And they started collecting them in 1171. So Taravangian and his silent gatherers, as they're called, have been killing people for at least two years to write down things that they think they see on the other side. I completely missed that on my first read through the book. Any any thoughts? Yeah, I didn't pick that up at all. I, I had no I had no idea how long this is going for. The the context seemed to make it seem like it'd been going on for a while. I mean Teravangian, like you said, did talk about we've we've started seeing these, you know, seven years ago or six years ago or, or whatever it is. So I, I just kind of assume this has been going on for a while. But yeah, that the, those dates are very, very helpful to put wrap my mind around this. This is this is a very systematic murder of a lot of people. Any thoughts? Really? <laughs> I have so many. <laughs> I did not notice this at all until y'all just pointed it out. I did not know that that was the connection to the epigraphs. And so I'm kind of floored at the moment, to be quite quite honest with you. Yeah. Um, this is huge. I don't fully know what to make of it right now. So do you remember that even as far back as the young Kaladin chapters, Carbronth is known as the city of bells and the city of hospitals. If you are sick, you go to Carbronth because they have the best surgeons and Kaladin was going to go to Carbronth to study. Now we know that they've been secretly killing their dying and sometimes shipping in people that are not going to die and going to kill them because the secret can't get out that I was, I was shook when I, when I realized this, I think it was my second read through. Yeah. yeah. I like absolutely crazy. This basically gives everything more perspective and kind of more what the heck is going on here because also, side note, I just got my physical copy of the book today. So I'm going to try and look through this and uh, and see all these like starting 
epigraphs. There's just so much. I don't. I'm kind of. I'm a little overwhelmed. Someone take the floor. So, when we got this reveal with Teravangian, we start to. It starts to dawn on you as a reader just the magnitude of what he's doing here, and you know how unquestionably evil he apparently is. My my first thing I'm trying to figure out is okay, what's the motive? Because anytime you come across a villain, they I, I immediately look for okay, what what's their driving force? No, typically no one is pure evil. They sure. they they view themselves as some sort of a hero, right. and so trying to figure out unless they're purely insane, you, you occasionally get like the you know I've lost my mind kind of villain. Teravangian is clearly not that. Although maybe that, I don't know. We'll see. But I'm, I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's his thought process? And he, he kind of spells it out for you, but it's a little bit difficult to decipher. He thinks that he is going to save the world with this. He thinks that these little bits that people are are spouting when they die as these are the clues that we are going to need to defend ourselves against, I guess we assume the last desolation. I don't know that he, does he say last desolation? I don't remember. He doesn't. Yeah, I didn't think so. But clearly that's the apocalypse that's that's coming in the the future. Sure. So he's trying to protect against it by gathering as much of this information as he can and he actually he has an interesting discussion with with Zeth where he says, you know, you and I are are not that different. I am choosing to do this terrible thing in order to save the world. I, I think Zeth even says at a point at a point you're a monster. Mm-hmm. And Teravangian says, "Yep, you're right. I am, but I will be the monster so that I can so that I can save the world, and no one else has to be." Which is is kind of what Zeth is, and we get a little bit of hints as Zeth is going through this of perhaps that is Zeth's true punishment. That's what he's been sent to do because of whatever he did, which we don't know. Is that his punishment is he has to bear the sins of others. People are going to use him to do these terrible things. And Zeth talks about how it's not not his fault. It still is his fault. He's responsible for the things that he's doing, but he still has to do them anyway. That's his punishment for being truthless. And Teravangian kind of views himself in a similar way. I have to do this terrible thing to save the world. Yes, it's terrible, but I'm going to do it. And yeah, that was a lot of rambling thoughts without a conclusion. But that's me trying to process where what Teravangian is trying to do here. Here's a, here's something we can conclude for this chapter. Who's the villain? Is it Teravangian? Is it Zeth? Is it Sadius? Who's the villain? Is it Shalon? Is it Shalon? <laughs> I, my answer to that is the, the immediate villain, the antagonist for the way of Kings, I think is Sadius. I think he's the one you interact with the most. He's the force that our protagonists are working against for the majority of the book. There's a couple other villains. Capsule probably gets thrown in the, in the villain category. But then when you look at the bigger scale, okay, who's the, the ultimate villain, who's the behind the scenes, you know, working to the most evil end, that seems to be Teravangian. So I'm assuming Teravangian is going to become a more relevant villain in the future, but he is maybe the ultimate villain here, whereas Sadius is the more immediate villain. 
but what if he's doing what he's doing to prevent the desolation from odium? What is that's what I was about to say. Does that still make him a villain? So I was gonna say we don't so we don't like Terevangian a whole lot. Not right now. But we don't really understand what he's working against. And I think what he's working against is probably the huge villain here. I was going to say my guess as to the ultimate antagonist, I entirely agree with Elliot that for this book, Sadius was the antagonist. He was the bad guy that we don't like. Um, But the ultimate antagonist, I think, has more to do with the Voidbringers, which I wanted to go back to that with Shallan. Yep, we can um, do that. As well as stuff with the epilogue. Okay. And our... Uh... But before we leave Teravangian, are you about to move on? Because I have a, a thought real quick. Yes, go right ahead. So before we leave Teravangian, what I will say is, have y'all learned nothing from the Way of Kings? Hmm. Not not this way of kings, but the way of kings that Dalinar is reading. Because if we go look at the the morals that Dalinar is studying and the whole journey before destination and the whole means to an end type of assessment of honor and doing the right thing, that code clearly, I think, says from what we've learned that the the means do not justify the end. And so what you're doing matters just as much as where you're going. And so if you kind of apply that that process, that uh, that measurement stick to Teravangian, then he's clearly in the the evil category for me of he may have an ultimate goal that he thinks is good and may even be good. And at the end of the day, maybe even what he's doing is the way to save Roshar. But if he's going to murder so many people to get there, the question becomes, was it even worth it? And right. is he sacrificing the journey in favor of the of the destination? So that's, I we, we, you're right. We don't know a ton about Teravangian yet, and I probably shouldn't judge him quite yet. Although this was a pretty dark reveal for him, but I, I would immediately apply that comparison to him and pretty quickly throw him in the nope, no excuse for that. At, and at this point, at this point, you're kind of supposed to be throwing him there, so that's not that's not completely out of the out of the blue. I'm I'm giving you more than the first reader usually picks up here. So yeah, yeah, I, I agree with Elliot though. I you're, you're like right now, Teravangian is bad. He's probably the worst person we know of. Um, although I am curious about. Like I said before, the we see a correlation in the Shalon chapters.